All right. Well, good morning. Uh, wherever you are listening, I'm glad you're able to tune in. And um, I want to start by looking at uh, a verse in Acts. Uh, we, if you were tuning into some of the videos we did on, online this week, you would have already heard this verse. But I want to read it again and, and talk a little bit about it. In Acts 11:19, there's been a persecution on the church. And in verse 19, it says this, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, the men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And then verse 21 says this, And the hand of the Lord was with them hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The threat that that was um, possible, that it could wipe out the church, ended up spreading the gospel, spreading the church. The church grew as a result of people in the fear of the persecution moving around to different places and preaching the gospel to people who had not heard it yet. Um, This is... Uh, how God works, it's often that things that look like death result in life. Things that look like a hindrance are actually opportunities. Uh, This is so often the case, and I believe this is what's happening now in our world right now, and that we need to be praying for that, right? Let's be praying for that. The Christians who were spread over the persecution went about preaching good news. If you're listening and, and and you're not sure what a Christian is, we are people who believe in good news. We believe in really, really good news. We believe that God made us, that we exist for him and for his glory, that he designed us on purpose in his image so that we could worship him and enjoy him forever. We also believe the bad news, the, the realistic news, that this world is fallen and broken and that people are sinners. That our sin runs deep, that we can't fix ourselves. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much religion we try to add to our lives, uh, how many good things we try to do, we can't fix the depths of our problem. But God has so loved us that he came in Jesus Christ, who was fully God, fully man, to live a life that we could never live, a perfect life, pleasing to the Father. He willingly went to the cross. Why? to pay the penalty for sinners. Sinners deserve eternal death, but Christ took upon himself the sins of all the people who would ever turn to him and trust in him. He died on that cross. He rose from the dead. He's alive today. And the good news that we believe that we want to spread is this, that you, in turning to Jesus Christ, can be saved from your sin, that you don't have to fear death, that you don't have to be caught up in the panic because you believe in a sovereign Lord who rules over all, who cares for you, and who wants a relationship with you and has provided a way for you to be saved and forgiven and cleansed and welcomed into the family of God. That's the best news that you will ever hear. And it's the news that we need right now in the midst of the crisis. I want to ask this question, who did God use to spread this message around? Uh, As you know, if you have a little bit of Bible history knowledge, that Jesus 
was born in Bethlehem, that's far away from here, that Jesus was in Jerusalem some of his life in the region of Israel, in the country of Israel, he was there his life. How did the gospel come to Rancho Cucamonga, the Southern California? Uh, how is the gospel spreading? Uh, in church history, uh, I've been reading a book on church history, let me show you here. Uh, this book right here, In the Year of Our Lord by Sinclair Ferguson. So far, I recommend it. I'm about halfway through. And he makes this observation that in the 10th century, uh, the church was so, so off mission. It, it, that's, that's what we call the Dark Ages. And he says that the church got caught up into two big problems. One, they got way too caught up into political power. And two, way too caught up in trying to impress the world. And in this book, he makes an observation that could it be true that we're falling into the same problems again in the church today? We're trying to get power and we're trying to impress the world as if those are the ways that the gospel spreads. We're going to look this morning, we're, we're picking back up in the gospel of Mark because I think it's going to be good and healthy for us to just keep focusing on the word of God, what it has for us. And, and try to make things as normal as we can make them, studying the Word of God together. I want to show you, as we look at the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1, the title of the message this morning is, Follow Jesus, What Jesus Does with His Followers. And it's part two, because a few weeks ago we began by looking at Jesus' call, where he says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. He he calls these four men to be his disciples, and I want to ask this question, what were these guys like? How did the gospel get started with the people that God chose? Uh, what were they like? What were they uh, passionate about? What, did, what happened in their lives? God ended up using these four guys, and then others came a little bit later, to be the foundation on which Jesus builds his church, these apostles. It wasn't big political power. It wasn't impressive megachurches. It was these, these guys, these, these four and then eventually these 12 that God used to spread his gospel. And I think when we look at this, we can be really encouraged today about how God is still spreading his gospel. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, and we're going to draw out four, uh, four, four uh, descriptions of these people that Jesus uh, picks out. Let's look at verse 16. I'll read the passage and then we'll make some observations about what these people were like. Verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. There it is. I want to look at these four men. You saw them there. You have Simon. Jesus will later change his name to Peter. You have Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. You go a little bit further down, and you have James and John, who are also brothers, and they're the sons of Zebedee. 
I just want to draw out four observations about these men, and I do think it'll encourage us when we learn what these, peop- what, what these guys were like, because we'll be able to see a little bit of ourselves in them, and it'll give us some hope that God uses people like them to do his work in the world. And so let's, let's make our first observation. They were ordinary men. If you're uh, following along in your, your packet, the worship packet we gave you guys, this is a, a fill-in for you. Here's our first one. They were ordinary men. As you see here in the text, Jesus is just walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees these men, and what are they doing? They're casting their nets into the sea. They're fishermen. These, they weren't highly educated men. They weren't royalty. They weren't prominent. They were just fishermen. Jesus called fishermen to be his first disciples. He goes to James and John, and they are uh, slightly different. You notice that Zebedee has boats. Uh, You notice that Zebedee, at the end of verse 20, he has hired servants, and so he might have had a little bit more money, a little bit more wealth, but these are men who are normal, earthy fishermen. Uh, Even in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when the rulers of the synagogue are not quite sure what to do to these guys, they don't really like them because they're upsetting all kinds of things, it says they perceived that they were uneducated common men. And so even the the apostles were recognized by the leaders of the day as they're not really that educated. They're common, ordinary men. I want to just pause and just just take um, a moment to find some hope in this. These guys are really ordinary. God doesn't need these extraordinary personalities, extremely gifted people to do his work. He doesn't need the rich and the powerful Here are some ordinary guys, four fishermen, that get called by Jesus to follow him. And we're going to see a bit later that they have dramatic impact on the early church. I think this is something we can note down. That the more dependent we are on super pastors and super personalities and big impressive programs and big impressive church buildings and big old things that we're trying to do, I think the more we do that, probably the less powerful the church is. Jesus builds with ordinary men. They're just normal guys. They're fishermen. I find a lot of hope in that because I know I'm pretty ordinary. And most of us, no offense, are pretty ordinary people. We, we, we just are uh, going about our daily lives, and when Christ called us to himself and we came and started to follow him, Um, we don't have much to offer. Not many of us are wise. Consider your calling, as 1 Corinthians says. And so this is really hopeful for us, that we don't have to be great, extravagant, gifted, rich, powerful people. We're ordinary. Here, let's look at the second observation. They were different men. They were different men. And what I mean by that, they weren't all cookie-cutter, same exact personality kind of guys. Let's look on. You don't see a lot of it in this short little text, but um, as you kind of read through the Gospels, you see that these personalities actually begin to show themselves. You probably know Peter the most, right? Peter? Peter is the natural leader. Peter is the first one to speak. Peter has been called the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth because he's so often putting his foot in his mouth by the things he says. 
Peter is always listed first in the list of the apostles because he was the upfront guy. He was the, the bold one. He was sometimes brash. Uh, Peter's the one, if you remember, at the transfiguration where Jesus shows his glory. Peter's the one that's immediately trying to figure out what he needs to do. He's talking about setting up tents and, and trying to figure out uh, what to do while the others just bow and worship in fear. Peter's always processing. Sometimes his uh, mouth is running faster than his thoughts, and he says things that are uh, that he shouldn't say. You remember when Jesus was being arrested, and the, 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 the guards come to arrest Jesus, and who's the one that goes and pulls out his knife, and he's going to try to fight off the guys? I mean, he, he even misses Malchus, and he's probably not aiming for his ear, but he ends up cutting off his ear. I mean, Peter was bold, he was brash, he was up front, he was always going big. And there are some of us maybe now that are kind of that personality. He's the, the big, the natural leader, the go-getter. You're going you're gonna to go big and whatever you're going to do, you're going to do it with all your might. That's what Peter was like. Andrew, his brother, doesn't seem to be that way at all. In fact, when you kind of encounter the, the different times Peter, uh, Andrew is mentioned, he's always in the background. We have no evidence that he is preaching in the New Testament. Uh, he, he, there's no recorded sermons. There's no speeches. He doesn't do anything big or extraordinary. He's, he's not even one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. There's four the apostles mentioned in this text that we looked at. Three of them are part of the inner three, but not Andrew. He's been called the apostle of the small things. So he's totally different from his brother. He's not the one that's up and in, in the first to speak. He's quiet and reserved and behind the scenes. Now, James and John, uh, they're always kind of lumped together, uh, most of the time, that is, and they're, they're brothers, and they seem to have a very uh, similar personality with one another, so we're going to lump them together. They seem to be a couple guys that they're not as upfront and bold and brash and big like Peter, but they are um, passionate and ambitious. You, you see that uh, it's probable that they had some money in the family. Zebedee, again, he has his hired servants. He has boats. In John chapter 18, Zebedee is described as having some connections with the high priest. So Zebedee was a, um, probably a man of some wealth. And so James, of John, James and John, Zebedee's sons, were probably used to getting what they wanted and know, knew how to go and get what they wanted to get. In fact, in Matthew 20, I always find this kind of humorous, um, James and John's mother goes to Jesus and basically says, hey, what do we have to do to make it happen that my sons can get your, the, the right and left uh, thrones that you're in your kingdom? They, they, wanted, they wanted to be at the top. They had some ambition. And somehow they had roped their mother into kind of vouching for them and trying to get them that position. They wanted uh, what they wanted. They were ambitious. They were passionate. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, just as another kind of funny story to illustrate some of this personality that these guys had, they're passing through Samaria, the Samaritans don't really respond to Jesus, and James and John are both recorded. In, in Luke 9, 54, they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, do you want us now to call down fire from heaven and consume them? It's almost like they're just waiting for the opportunity to call down fire from heaven and consume an entire city. They wanted to consume the Samaritans. These guys were passionate, ambitious men, James and John were. And they couldn't have been more different from Andrew, and they couldn't have been more different than Peter, 
So you got Peter, the loud leader type. You got James and John, the kind of quiet ambition, ready to do whatever they need to do to get what they want. And you got Andrew, this behind the scenes, more reserved personality, no kind of big sermons, no, nothing like that. They're different. They're different people, different men, and yet God is going to use all of them. You know, I have right here, you see this? This is my membership directory. I was looking through it last night, praying for a lot of you in the church, and as I look through this, I see there are so many different personalities that God has brought together in our church. You got people who are like Peter. They're, they're, they're talkers. They're big. They're high energy. And you got some of you who are like Andrews. You're quiet. You're reserved. You're faithful, and you're doing all that you can behind the scenes. You got some who are more like the James and the Johns that are not big and bold and brash like Peter, but you're ambitious, and you have things that you want to do. You have plans that you want to accomplish. We're going to see that each one of these men is used by God in amazing ways. God uses all kinds of different people with different backgrounds and different experiences. I find a lot of hope in that as well, don't you? That not only are these men ordinary, but God can use a variety of gifts. And as you look around in your church family, look in your director, and you think about who God has put here, let's just praise the Lord a little bit for the fact that we're not all the same. We're not all in the same age bracket, praise the Lord for that. We don't all have the same interests, praise the Lord for that. We have the same Lord and Savior, the same Spirit that indwells us. And because of that, we are united. But we are different across the board. And that is good. In fact, I would encourage you to find opportunities with people who are different from you because it highlights the transcendent unity we have in Christ. Uh, the Lord prepares His church, and He gives many gifts and we have a variety of gifts because we have a variety of different kinds of people. Just as these four men are a variety, there's a variety there, there's differences in who they are. Jesus is not only going to use the Peters of the world. He's going to use the Andrews as well and the Jameses and the Johns. And this is really encouraging to us because that means he will use you. Now let's look at our third thing, our third observation. Now this also will hit home because these men... They were failing men. Oh, did they fail. And it seems like the, the more bold they were, the, the more big they failed. They were failing men. At, at some points, it was a failure to understand. How many times did they miss the point of the parables? Do you not yet understand, Jesus would have to say. How many times did they miss the point of the death and resurrection? Even Jesus, remember, was pulled aside by Peter. After Jesus just said he's going to go, he's going to die, he's going to be in the tomb for three days, he's going to rise from the dead, and, and Peter has the gall to go bring Jesus aside and rebuke him, and Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. These are, these are men who are failing to understand. How often are we failing to understand what God has given us in his word? They fail to love. Uh, we already mentioned James and John wanting to destroy Samaria. Uh, they, they seem like they, they, they got all this truth and all this passion pent up in them, but they lack love, arguing about who's going to be in the, the best spot in the kingdom. These guys failed to love their neighbors. They failed 
to love their Lord at times. They failed to love each other as they vied for the best spot. They failed to love. And don't we often fail to love? Uh, Another way they failed is they failed to have faith. Can you remember how many times that, that Jesus had to say to them, do you not have any faith, you of little faith? Have you no faith? He had to rebuke his disciples from time to time. And we all probably know the most, fail, the most popular failure, Peter's failure. It was a failure to be bold. It was a failure to love. I mean, it was a failure that encompasses all other failures. When he denied his Lord three times, he was a coward when a little girl asked him about his being with Jesus. He acted like he didn't know Jesus. All of these guys failed. Jesus picked them, and they're just fishermen. They're just ordinary men. They're, they're all kind of different. They all have their little quirks and their backgrounds. And as Jesus leads his life and, and disciples them and teaches them, they are failing again and again and again. They're not getting it. They're not loving as they should. They're not believing as they should. They're not standing up for the truth as they should. And let me ask you this question. You, you've read the Gospels, I'm sure, or maybe you're familiar with Jesus. What did Jesus do with these men? Did he cast them out? Did he, did he reject them? Listen, he corrected them. He instructed them. He sometimes rebuked them. But he never rejected them. These men failed extravagantly, and Jesus held on to them. In fact, he restored them. Man, I am encouraged by that reality because I know that I have failed to understand. I have failed to love. I have failed to believe. I have failed to be bold. I have failed in all those ways. Many of us Christians know what it's like to feel like Peter, that I failed my Lord, to weep bitterly over our own sin. And yet, how amazing is it that we have a Savior who doesn't reject failures, but restores them as they come humbly to him in repentance and admission of their own failure. God never uses that stamp, useless, on his children. He instructs, he rebukes, he corrects, he is committed to them long term, but he never rejects them. Sometimes these failures are exactly what we need for us to become fruitful disciples of Jesus Christ. John chapter 12 Verses 24 and 25, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know what failure helps us do? Failure helps us die to self. Failure helps us recognize our own weakness. Failure uh, cuts the legs out from under us, brings us to our knees, and makes us dependent on Jesus. I wonder if any of you are even dealing with failure right now. What do we do when we deal with failure? You go to Jesus. Go to him with your failure to love. Go to him with your failure to understand. Go to him with your sins. He is gentle and patient and kind and forgiving And he does not turn away those who come to him. He restores them and forgives them. And here's the last observation that we find as we study these men's lives. They were fruitful men. 
that their failures weren't final. Their failures weren't fatal. In fact, their failures probably were used by God to push them out and make them fruitful. And they probably would never have been as fruitful as they end up being if they had never failed. I want to show you some things. You could turn into the book of Acts. You could turn into Acts chapter 1. In, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's no longer physically with them. And in chapter 1, verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Verse 13 in Acts 1. And when they had entered, they, ent- they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, remember him, and John, and James, and Andrew. The first four mentioned are the ones we've just read about. The others are there too. But skip ahead to verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up. If you contrast that with his failure previously, that's a big deal. He stands up. He once backed down, but now he's standing up. And he's standing up before the the company, and he begins to preach about Jesus. He begins to tell them what they need to do after Jesus has defected. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus, or Peter, standing up with the eleven, he lifts up his voice and he preaches Christ. He was a failure. He had failed big time. And now he's preaching the gospel. He is addressing them. Peter will grow up to be a pastor who is zealous and eager to preach Christ and to lead the church. He actually grows up, and if you, you read First and Second Peter, you'll find that he is tender, that he's gentle, and that he knows how to talk to suffering Christians because that's who First and Second Peter are written to. He will be so committed to Jesus that Peter will end up dying for him. You say, okay, wow, well, that's amazing. What ended up happening to John? Uh, John was this ordinary fisherman as well. What happened to him? Well, John was there with Peter. John was there with him. He was by his side. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, John's right there. He's in leadership. He's at Peter's side helping him along the way. Uh, What's fascinating to me is before Jesus died, as Jesus is on the cross, you probably remember this, Jesus has some last words. And one of the last things he does before he gives up his spirit is he speaks to the apostle John. You know what he tells him to do? He tells John to take care of Mary, Jesus' mother. Remember, John was an ambitious guy. John was passionate. John was the one calling fire down from heaven. Jesus nicknamed John a a son of thunder. You think there's a better way to make someone who's ambitious and passionate, to make them tender and gentle? Jesus knew the exact remedy that John needed. And Jesus said, John, I want you to care for my old mother. I want you to watch out for her. And that was John's duty. And I do believe that that turned John into a gentle, loving, fatherly figure in the early church. He goes on to write 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, the Gospel of John. He's the only apostle that lives in the old age. The rest of them die. He becomes known as an elderly, like, sage 
wise and loving to the church. And there's actually uh, stories written about what he was like as a pastor that are amazing accounts of love and firmness and wisdom. A pastor of pastors. Uh, John, who is this ordinary, ambitious fisherman, is now an elderly, wise, loving, self-sacrificing pastor. What about James? Turn to Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, we don't know all that happened to James, but we do know he was an apostle and he was a leader in the church. He was obviously well-known because in verse 12 of, or sorry, verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And he saw that it pleased the Jews, and he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, Peter got eventually rescued, but James gave up his life. He's the first apostolic martyr, giving up his life for the church. A man who, again, was passionate, who was uh, ambitious and when we first met him, is now laying down his life for the church. The same one who was arguing about who got the best spot in the kingdom is now laying down his life. See what happens when you follow Jesus? Your life changes. And Jesus can take you, who's ordinary, uh, you're, you're a common guy, a common girl, you got nothing special about you. And just like these men, he turns them into useful, bold, lay-down-your-life people. Well, what about Andrew? What about Andrew, the quiet one? Not one of the inner three. Well, like I already mentioned, that he, he, there's no sermons of his recorded. But here's some things we see about Andrew. This is fascinating. I think this will really encourage you. You know who introduced Peter? to Jesus for the first time? It was Andrew. Andrew was following John the Baptist. He saw John the Baptist say, this is the Lamb of God pointing to Jesus. And, and Andrew went and began to follow Jesus. And then what did he do first thing after that? He went to his brother Peter said, Peter, we found the Messiah. <laughs> we found him. You know, another th time Andrew appears in the story is when there's thousands of people who are hungry. They've all gathered around Jesus and Jesus is, they're wondering, where, where, how are we going to feed all these people? None of the apostles know what to do. Philip's wondering what we can do. Peter's wondering what we can do. You know what Andrew does? He finds a little boy with some food. And what does it say he does? It says he brings him to Jesus. He just brought him to Jesus. In John chapter 12, a similar thing's happened. There's these Greeks that are appearing, and they want to hear from Jesus. They want to know what's going on. And they show up in John chapter 12, verse 20, and they first start talking to Philip. And Philip's a little bit confused. He's not quite sure what to do. And Philip goes to Andrew. You know what Andrew does? It's very simple. Andrew's a common sense guy. Andrew takes him to Jesus. And every time we meet Andrew, he's just bringing people to Jesus. Peter seems to be the one that's, that the crowds all listen to, but Andrew's the one it will never speak to the crowd, but he'll talk to the individual. And what is he consistently doing? He's just bringing people to Jesus. Listen, if there were no Andrew, there would be no Peter. There'd be no Peter because maybe Peter would have never met Jesus. Andrew brought him to him. One commentator said about 
Andrew. Andrew is not one of the greatest of the apostles. He's typical, yet he is typical of those men of broad sympathies and sound common sense without whom the success of any great movement cannot be assured. There are some of us that will never speak in front of a crowd. Uh, some of us that will never be up front in any way. But like this commentator said, there's sound common sense there. And they're very, very attuned to the need of the individual. And they bring people to Jesus. I do a lot of membership interviews. And I hear how people get saved. And uh, there are sometimes, uh, a few occasions, where I hear that people are saved in a, a great revival or a great uh, meeting, a, a big uh, sermon um, uh, draws someone to Christ. On occasion, there's, there's something like that. Most of the time, it's like an Andrew, a good friend, maybe it's a parent, co-worker, that just loves someone enough to tell them about Jesus, to bring them to Jesus. Let me tell you a story about a man named Edward Kimball. You know who he is? You've probably never heard of him. He was a Sunday school teacher for an old uh, church. And he taught faithfully, week in, week out. And one day, the Lord brought a certain young man into his class. And this man, this young man that was in this class, this teenage boy, was a mess. His life was all over the place. He did not... Uh, was not a Christian, created a bunch of distractions. But Edward Kimball wanted to reach this young man with the gospel. The young man worked in a shoe store. And so Edward Kimball thought, I'm going to go talk to him. I, I want to go tell him about the gospel and, and make sure he knows about Christ. And so he, he began walking to the shoe store. He was really nervous. In fact, he said that, he was so nervous that he was thinking about what he would say to the young man. And as he thought, he actually accidentally passed by the, the store that he intended to go in. He turned back around and, and realized where he was. And he walked in. And he started to share the gospel. He was really nervous. But he, he shared about Jesus. He describes his presentation of the gospel as limping. He, he felt as really weak, but the young man was impressed by the love of this Edward Kimball, and right there when he heard the gospel, he thought, I need this Savior. That man, the young man repented of his sin, turned to Christ, and you know who that man was? D.L. Moody, an evangelist who would later become a, a widely known evangelist who would preach to tens of thousands and, and have tons of people, thousands of people, come to Christ as a result of his gospel ministry. He's an Andrew type of guy. Listen, let's wrap this up. We're all very ordinary. We're all very ordinary people. We're all very different people. We've all failed in a number of ways. But Jesus has called us to follow him. And he has said, it is his promise that when we follow him, he makes us into fishers of men. And listen, we are never going to impress the world by gaining political power. We're never going to move and advance the gospel by being impressive to worldly people. 
It's ordinary people like you and me who just follow Jesus. And however God made us, we, we take whatever God has made us and we give it all to Him. We say, Lord, I'm living for you. We follow Him and He makes us fishers of men. It is critical in this time that we remember that as followers of Jesus, God has gifted us to be a light in the darkness, to bring hope where there's no hope right now. And that's with friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members. We are not allowed to say, well, God, you didn't make me a Peter. You didn't make me a James or a John. You didn't make me an Andrew. God made you on purpose the way you are. He has gifted you, and he has invited you into his plan of redemption to be a part of making disciples. I want you to be praying about what that looks like today in our world right now as it faces hopelessness and fear. Church, we're still on mission. And I'm thankful that God has created us the way we are and given us a variety of people to do the work that God has for us. And I'm looking forward to what God ends up doing in us and around us because of this crisis. Let's pray. So Lord, we've been called to follow you. And Lord, we're, we're trusting that as we follow you, that you change us and transform us. That you take Peter's and Andrew's and James's and John's and you use us as weak as we are to advance your gospel. And so Lord, whatever you've made us to be like, may we commit to follow you with all our heart, to seize the moment take opportunities to walk through open doors that you set before us and in our lives to glorify you in all things. Lord, we love you. Be with us and strengthen us during this season. In Jesus' name, amen.